The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, Amen. Come, Holy Ghost, fill the hearts of thy faithful, and kindle in them the fire of thy love. Send forth thy Spirit, and they shall be created, and thou shalt renew the face of the earth. Let us pray, O God, who didst instruct the hearts of thy faithful by the light of the Holy Ghost, grant us by that same Spirit to be truly wise, and ever to rejoice in its consolation. Through Christ our Lord, Amen. Hello and welcome to What Catholics Believe. I am Thomas Nagley. I'm here with Father William Jenkins. He is a traditional Catholic priest of the Society of St. Pius V. He also serves as the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you tonight? Very fine, Tom. Thank you. How are you doing? Great, Father. Great to be here again. It's good to see you, as yes. always. Uh, Father, any prayer requests to begin the show tonight? Yes, there are a myriad of prayer requests, Tom. Uh, I always ask us to pray for our country, of course. Um, pray for our citizens who definitely need need help. Pray for the victims of the Hamas attack um, and Israel. Um, of course, when we pray for them, we're not only praying for their deliverance from uh, physical evil, but also moral evil. And we're praying for the salvation of souls. You know, we're asking God for a grace of conversion uh, to the true faith and um, we're asking God for the, for the grace uh, to seek, uh, you know, forgiveness of sin and uh, and uh, God's sanctifying grace. We we pray for that for all of those people. It, it may seem uh, beyond the realm of human com uh, comprehension to imagine how those prayers could be answered, but then only God knows uh, how to answer them. So we we pray. We we do what we're supposed to do, and that is pray. Uh, we pray, as our Blessed Mother asked us, uh, told us, we need to pray for peace. But that peace has to be between us and God, first of all. We have to be at peace with God before we can be at peace with each other. So we pray for both. Um, but I do ask you to continue your prayers, please. Uh, for some dear souls uh, we've been asked to pray for, continue to pray for Joe Barry, that he recover from his, uh, the stroke that he had. And we ask that uh, we pray for uh, not only Nancy and Lori Nelson, but also their cousin, uh, uh, Monsignor, uh, that was his name, uh, very well, actually. I sent out a request for prayers for him earlier today. Their cousin is a, is a Monsignor, and he's just been diagnosed with cancer, so please do keep him in your prayers. And, uh, of course... You know, in my, in my age, uh, you have these senior moments, so I ask for forgiveness for that. But God knows very well who Monsignor is, Nancy and Lori's cousin, and uh, I ask you to please uh, uh, certainly keep, keep him in your prayers as well. Very good. And there are many others, many others here at Immaculate Conception and throughout all the missions who are in need of help. Pray for all of those who are, whose names are committed to the Immaculate Heart of Mary prayer list. 
God knows them all and can uh, have mercy on them and bless them all because of your prayer. Okay. Thank you for that, Father. Uh, well, Father, we wanted to uh, maybe start with a bit of a follow-up from our last program. We uh, talked about uh, Vigano and a, uh, a recorded speech uh, and a, uh, the text of that speech that uh, you read You read much of that on, on last week's program, and we uh, received a lot of views, a lot of comments from that program. Uh, many of our, our viewers are very interested in that. And uh, at the time we made that program, Father, there was... Um, I believe a bit of confusion. We weren't exactly sure if uh, what exactly had happened with this speech and uh, if it had actually been, been given or canceled uh, by Michael Matt at his Catholic Identity Conference in Pennsylvania. Um, but since that time, um, Michael Matt actually made uh, made his own short video kind of explaining mm -hmm. what happened, um, saying that uh, he, he did in fact uh, cancel the, the speech, made the decision to cancel the speech, but he said that uh, that topic essentially of state of vacantism uh it didn't um didn't exactly fit in the uh confines of the the catholic identity conference where his intended goal was to uh quote unquote unite the clans um kind of have, have a uh mm -hmm. strive for this unity among catholics he said uh, that didn't really fit the purpose there and uh so for that reason he uh made the decision to to cancel the speech but i know you you uh, watched that that brief video uh response uh, of michael matt and uh what what was um what was your reaction to seeing that video father well i'm glad he issued it because it did clear the air a bit um the initial reports were actually rather confusing okay confused and confusing so it's very hard to tell exactly what happened yeah. But uh, Michael Matt has kind of straightened that out. He explained that uh, Archbishop Vigano was uh, actually slated to give a kind of oh, a question-answer video conference, live conference. Uh, I think it was at the end of the, right. of the program. Um, but uh, that Archbishop Vigano himself uh, uh, said he would not be doing that, but that he would sending, be sending a video um, speech and he did, uh, and um, when Michael Matt received it, he knew even before uh, listening to it all, reading it all, that he would not be playing it at the uh, conference. And the reason why he would not be playing it at the conference, actually he said that he knew the, the conference was so, so good and so uplifting um, that he, he expected, was not surprised that the devil would get his hand in this. At first, when I heard that, I, had, I thought, is he talking about Archbishop Vigano? But he wasn't, uh, clearly, because, as he explained, he has nothing but the highest regard and respect for Archbishop Vigano, he said. He said the problem was that um, Archbishop Vigano's talk um, was entitled Vitium Consensus, right? A lack of consent called into question the papacy of Francis, and then went on to explain um, why there is a very, at least, to say the very least, a very serious objective doubt concerning uh, Francis's papacy. He, uh, in the course of the conference, for those who who listened to it or read it. Um, read the transcript of it. He answered some objections uh, from uh, Bishop Schneider and then went on to present his case why Francis should not be regarded as a true pope <clears throat> uh, or why it was very questionable that he was a true pope. So uh, Michael Matt said as, as soon as he saw that this is where Bishop 
Archbishop Vigano's talk was leading, said he couldn't show it at the conference because he had built the conference as a unity conference. They wanted to build a unity among the clans. You know, his motto is um, his motto is to unite the clans. So he wanted to um, have a conference that would be uh, kind of thrust in that direction of building unity and consensus among traditional Catholics. Um, so he said that raising the question of sedevacantism, as he called it, uh, would be divisive and would be not only working contrary to the purpose, the stated purpose of the conference, but it would also be, in his mind, undermining <clears throat> and even, in a sense, uh, double-crossing, he didn't use the word, but <laughs> you get that impression, double-crossing the 17 or so other speakers who had come prepared to talk about, well, unity. <clears throat> and um, so he said, well, I, I couldn't exactly um, sort of switch the, uh, the whole tenor of, of, the, uh, of the identity conference um, and pull the, essentially pull the rug out from under the rest of the speakers. At the last minute, it wouldn't be fair to them, so uh, I simply couldn't show that conference, uh, Bishop, uh, Bishop, uh, Archbishop Bigano's speech at that conference. <clears throat> um, he, he, you know, it, it was kind of pathetic in a way when he said that. He, he sounded as though he was almost pleading. He must have been receiving a lot of um, negative feedback, as it were, a lot of negative comments from the fact that Archbishop Vigano's video conference was, uh, was suppressed. Um, but as uh, Michael Matt explained, it was never actually on the table to begin with. <clears throat> it wasn't what uh, he, he had agreed to. Um, but evidently there was a, a big uh, reaction uh, to the, the refusal to play Archbishop Vigano's uh, speech, so video recorded speech. So uh, when you listen to Michael Matt's comments, you get the impression he, he's really almost pleading with people to settle down, accept his explanation, and uh, to realize that he still is a great supporter of Mr. Ashbridge Vigano and so on. Um, okay, one, one might say, okay, uh, Michael Matt found himself in a very tough spot. He made an executive prudential decision on the basis of his agreements with all of those who had come from all over the world, basically, to talk um, there uh, for the purpose of uniting the clans. But I would like to see uh, the follow-up. I mean, Michael Matt talked about his admiration for Archbishop Vigano, that he had many good friends who were of Vicantists, who he doesn't blame them. <laughs> as though it's blameworthy to be a Sedevacantist. He <laughs> blames Francis for the fact that they're Sedevacantist. But I would like to see uh, uh, Michael Matt actually feature Archbishop Vigano's talk on his channel. I guess you call it that, right? I'd like him to feature that talk of Archbishop Vigano for the sake of discussion. And I'd like to see that for well, a couple of reasons, at least a couple of reasons. One is, if he really is an admirer of Archbishop Vigano and thought he makes a good point, <coughs> then, then he should be willing to let Archbishop Vigano have, have his say on that. I think 
Archbishop Vigano's point is that we can't really have unity until we address this question. This is like the elephant in the room. Mm -hmm. And all attempts to, you know, gain unity, uh, to, to unite the clans, are kind of in vain as long as we suppress this very big question that will not go away. And it has to be addressed intelligently, thoughtfully, and, and, as, and as Catholics. And I agree with Archbishop Vigano. Uh, <clears throat> this is a question that will not go away. It's, it's beyond the point where people can just say the words, oh, say to the contest, and everyone screams in horror and runs away, uh, as though you're accusing them of racism or whatever. You know, play the racist card, you play the race, say to the contest card, and that shuts down all rational discussion, and we have this visceral reaction and say, well, that's, that's wrong, you can't do that. <clears throat> Archbishop Vigano is doing that, I think, because he is doing it. I think it, it, it just highlights the fact that this is, it demands serious discussion here, and he demands a serious response. Um, and this is not the way to do it, by simply silencing him, and saying we can't play this because it's too controversial. Well, how does somebody who <clears throat> says he's, he's trying to unite the clans then go on and say, well, there are certain subjects we can't cover because they're too controversial. Well, it's the controversies that divide the clans. And how are you going to unite them unless you address them, mm -hmm. right? So I guess that's the first thing I would say. <clears throat> but the, the second thing uh, I would say that it would also show Michael Matt's sincerity in saying that he has respect for Archbishop Vigano. <clears throat> and, um, and all right, good. Let, 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 his, uh, let him have his voice and let those who disagree have a serious, thoughtful discussion. Not a hysterical, visceral, emotional discussion, uh, but an actual, serious, theological discussion about the points that he's making. And those points will not go away, as you know, Tom. So, um, I think uh, Michael Matt and others should be grateful to Archbishop Figano for having had the courage to state this. Okay, maybe, maybe this conference uh, the Catholic Identity Conference that was scheduled to begin on October 1st, 2023 in Pittsburgh, maybe that was not the place to do it. Uh, maybe you can make the case. Okay, we have all these other speakers who are coming. They're all prepared to talk about one thing. And Archbishop uh, uh, Vigano says, well, let's discuss this very serious question. Okay, maybe they weren't prepared to discuss it. Maybe it wasn't the time and the place to do it. But maybe they should get prepared to discuss it. And maybe they should become prepared and, uh, and then address it seriously. Um, so let Michael Matt show his sincerity. If that's the reason why he did not um, air Archbishop Vigano's talk, then um, uh, because nobody was prepared for it and nobody was warned about it or informed about it, well, now they are. <clears throat> now they're informed. Now they can get prepared. Now let's air it and let's talk about it. Mm -hmm. And perhaps Michael Matt would agree to say, well, okay, th this obviously is a serious question proposed by a serious, serious uh, Catholic man, <laughs> uh, prelate, no, sorry, prelate, actually. And uh, then this demands our attention mm -hmm. and uh, our serious consideration. So let's get the best minds working on this question here, because the only way to unite the clans is by addressing this and dealing with it. Mm. I think that would actually speak well for uh, Michael Matt if he did that. Do you think that uh, 
serious discussion will actually take place, Father, because it, it seems that the uh, state of Vicantism <clears throat> question is becoming more mainstream, maybe. I mean, I, I think even even a, a couple of years ago, you wouldn't see um, things like you see now where you go on a lot of um, even just conservative Novus Ordo Catholic websites. They will um, feature a lot of articles, uh, even with, with Vigano's uh, comments, his, his speech, and uh, just the argument in general of questioning whether or not Francis is actually a, a real pope. Um, at least that discussion, it seems, is uh, beginning to kind of uh, bubble up to the surface a little bit more. And you even see some of the... Yeah. Uh, Nova Sordo, um, you see the, the Nova Sordo response to it more. Um, you, you know, we, we mentioned the, uh, the Sh Archbishop Schneider, um, his uh, critique basically uh, of state of econtism. So it seems that because that argument is bubbling up more and more, that actually some kind of response is being um, drawn out maybe well, of the Nova Sordo. Clearly not going away. Father Altman, James yeah. Altman, raised it very, very strongly. And, um, and now Archbishop Vigano. And uh, yes, it, it, those who are opposed to it are finding it more and more necessary to try to stamp it out and just dismiss it, you know, saying, no, it's out of the question because of this, or it's out of the question because of that. You can't even consider that possibility, you know. Uh, now, I think they're being required to say more than that <laughs> because people are, are really recognizing the problem, uh, you know, the, the 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 anti sedivicantus as it were are continually saying well you know look at what you're saying the consequences are untenable you know the, the problems are you know unconscionable we can't we can't say what you're saying because the problems um, are you know would have these dire consequences but now the sedivicantus are saying but look what you're saying and there are dire consequences to what you're saying too. If you're saying that this man really is the vicar of Christ on earth and the Pope and that he has the authority to be making these changes and so on and so forth, uh, basically we're agreeing <laughs> that he's actually using whatever authority or influence he has to destroy the church. You know? And um, then uh, you're saying that he, has, that he has the authority to do that and uh, we have to obey him or at least acknowledge that he speaks in the name of Christ, but do you, don't you see the problem with that? Um, so I think the Pathetic now are saying, really rising to the, the challenge and saying, but look at the consequences of, of accepting as the Pope. Uh, just, you know, saying that he, he is the Pope, he must be the Pope, you can't question it. There are dire consequences to that too. It's a dilemma, Tom. And this is the problem. It is a dilemma for Catholics. Mm -hmm. Um, and this is um, part of the chastisement. I'm sure it's part of the chastisement from God because of uh, Catholics' lack of zeal and um, you know in living their faith, uh, preaching their faith, uh, representing their faith, and 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 converting people to to uh, you know the, 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 the one true faith. I think that they've almost been apologetic about it, hiding it, and I think the consequences are are there. And they're very serious. So, um, <clears throat> I think you're going to find that those who adhere to the idea that Francis cannot be truly the Roman Pontiff, cannot be the Vicar of Christ on Earth, and uh, they have arguments, they have serious arguments proposed to oppose for this. I think they're going to actually be more vociferous as time goes on and say, "Look." There are very serious consequences to what you're saying. You're saying uh, 
that it, there, it is very, very bad to reject a true pope, pope. But it is no less bad to follow a false pope. And that's the question here. And it doesn't do you any good to be saying to us, but you're denying the pope, you're denying the papacy. Look at how, how serious that is. And you say, no, we're not denying the papacy, and we're certainly not denying the pope. You, by what you're saying, would be denying the pope and the papacy by pretending that Francis is the pope, and there's no question about it. We're saying that, actually. And um, we're saying that there are, you know, you've been accusing us of this and the other thing, but you've been begging the question and saying, but in denying the pope, you're doing this, and denying the pope, you're doing that. But you're begging the question and saying, our whole point is, is he the Pope? And you're not willing to even address that question of whether he is the Pope or not. You're just saying, but you're speaking against the Pope. You know, you're attacking the Pope. You're contradicting the Pope. And we're saying, is he the Pope? <laughs> and you will not, you won't even hear that question. Yeah. So I think the city of accountants are actually trying to get through their heads <laughs> that that is a question that needs to be addressed. Yeah. Father, maybe you don't want to get into this tonight, but where, where does this leave the Society of St. Pius X? Because if there, there's really this current, it seems, of um, more and more Novus Ordo Catholics, even Novus Ordo priests, Novus Ordo prelates now, who are, I mean, openly and publicly uh, questioning the, the legitimacy, the validity of, of Francis as a Novus Ordo pontiff. I mean, the only way, um, the only position the SSPX can take is to ironically defend Francis more and more, uh, more and more staunchly. And so it seems they almost have to ironically take this position where they are defending Francis against Novus Ordo, the claims of Novus Ordo prelates and Novus Ordo yeah, priests. Well, they're, 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 it's true, there are Novus Ordo prelates, there are Novus Ordo clergy, there are Novus Ordo people. And we've heard from some of them, actually, in the responses to our last program, who say that they could never accept Francis as a true pope. They cannot accept him as the, as the vicar of Christ on earth. Um, he doesn't, he, he doesn't, well, anyway. <laughs> um, the, um, but you're right, Tom. I mean, the Novus, the, unfortunately, the Society of St. Pius X has pretty much painted itself into the corner yeah. right now. And uh, we warned them, you know, that this is where it was heading, you know, that they had to at least allow for the possibility, at least allow for the possibility that Francis might not be a true pope. But of course, the reaction was already, you, you no good low-down state of accountants for even suggesting that. And, but that was not a, a Catholic response. It was not a legitimate, honest-to-goodness Catholic response. Thoughtful, intelligent, reasonable, <laughs> theological response. It was basically a, a visceral response, you know. And, um, but uh, um, now what do they do? I mean, they've been trying, they've been basically using that, I think, to um, assuage the fears and concerns of people who come from the Novus Ordo to them, thinking, well, at least we still have that contact with Rome, we still have, you know, that union with the Holy Father, and after all, he's been, he's been making concessions to the Society of St. Pius X, hasn't he? To their, the bishops of the St. Pius X, he's actually given them the okay to absolve in confession. He's given the okay under circumstances to witness marriages. So, you know, they're kind of using that, even though 
They were hearing confessions without Francis is okay. They were doing marriages for years without Francis is okay. So as far as they're concerned, Francis is okay is immaterial to them, really. It doesn't make them any more, more or less legitimate than they consider themselves anyway. But they can use that to convince people that it's okay. This is safe, safe haven. You believe in Francis and, and so on. You don't have to worry about being disobedient and coming to us. Or you don't have to worry about cutting yourself off from Rome and coming to us. You know, this is the, the argument that they use. Well, you know, this has raised some real fears among other uh, New Order traditionalist, quote-unquote, quote, organizations that Francis is actually trying to suppress the traditional Latin Mass everywhere but in the Society of St. Pius X. He's trying to stamp it out in all the dioceses and in <clears throat> these institutes like the Fraternity of St. Peter, Institute of Christ the King, so that um, the, those who are going to these things will either submit to Francis and give up their attachment to the traditional Mass, or will flee to Pius X and try to find a safe haven there. But Francis's idea, the fear is, that once he has concentrated all of the resistance into the Society of St. Pius X, then he will crush that based on their insistence that he's the true Pope. <clears throat> and their message to the people, come to us because this is the safe haven. You can still be under the Holy Father and be in our fold too. If, hey, if Francis cynically and sadistically said, well, I will get all of the remainder the remnant traditional Catholic people together under the wing of Pius X, and then I will use my authority that they recognize to to disband them and to crush them. Yeah. Uh, then where will they go? <clears throat> this is a fear that is being voiced out here, uh, not not by me actually, but by uh, other would-be traditional Catholic organizations who are trying to remain within the Novus Ordo structure. You see, so uh, they don't understand why Francis is kind of treating the Society of St. Pius X with kit gloves when they are targeted for destruction by Francis, for extinction. <clears throat> Frankly, I don't know either. I, I don't know what he's up to, but he's obviously up to something. <laughs> That's what modernists do. Yeah. Uh, they calculate the suppression of any true Catholicism and to replace it with modernism. They, they try to find a way to accomplish that goal. They, for the first 20 years after the new, more, new order mass came out, um, the use of the traditional Roman rite was strictly forbidden, virtually everywhere. The only priests I knew of who were permitted to uh, actually use the traditional Latin mass during those 20 years after the new mass came out were elderly priests who were consigned in, to nursing homes, and they could do it only privately, in the privacy of their room. The purpose was to create an entire generation of Catholics who would grow up without even knowing the traditional Mass and break that, 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 that uh, continuity. <clears throat> but, of course, there were priests who would not stop. You know, there were priests, Archbishop Lefebvre was ordaining, who would not stop offering the traditional Mass 
And they continued offering the traditional mass despite all of the recriminations, all of the condemnations, all of the threats uh, from the bishops and so on, the Novus Ordo bishops and so on. They continued that. Um, and they were considered renegades and rebels, and they were branded all by all kinds of names. They were excommunicated and, and so on and so forth. But they held fast to the faith, the traditional Catholic faith and its practice, the traditional Mass. And that's why, ultimately, uh, when Archbishop Lefebvre consecrated bishops, the Novus Ordo had to give in. Then they, they thought, well, now he's got bishops, to continue the Society of St. Pius X, we were hoping he would die without that and leave the Society of St. Pius X bereft of leadership and bereft of bishops to ordain priests for them. But that didn't happen. So now they started making concessions. Well, now we're going to allow the traditional Latin Mass, um, or at least the, you know, the 1962 version of it, in the dioceses where the bishops will allow it. And now we're going to expand this, and we're going to expand that, and we're going to give more and more permission to use it, because we certainly don't want people to leave us and go to Archbishop Lefebvre and his priests to find the traditional Latin Mass. So they, they decided then and there that they had to compromise, and for the first time in 20 years, make the traditional Latin Mass of the Roman Rite available anywhere publicly. But that was under strict controls from the bishops. That was the Ecclesia Dei Commission, as you know, uh, that was set up. And then, of course, Benedict came up with uh, Summorum Pontificum, which basically gave a kind of a carte blanche okay to the bishops to allow the traditional Mass, or at least the 1962 version, uh, with the 1962 changes. Uh, but it's precisely that that Francis is trying to crush now, because he said that it didn't work. He said the purpose of allowing that was to let people satisfy themselves with their attachment to Latin or the traditional Latin Mass. It'll basically wear thin, and they'll get used to the Novus Ordo at the same time, give up this attachment to the traditional Mass, and eventually the uh, the traditional Latin Mass will just kind of fade away on its own. Trying to suppress it didn't work. So now, by allowing it with restrictions, we'll let it die a natural death. Francis said that didn't work. He said that was Benedict's idea in allowing it. But it didn't work. He said now more and more people are getting attached to it. It's growing. Younger people are coming to it. And not only that, they're scrutinizing the new Mass and criticizing the new Mass for all its deficiencies. Francis said, we can't allow that. So he just came out heavy-handedly and said that the traditional Mass no, no longer reflects the, the Catholic teaching. It, it simply does not correspond, uh, like, basically, to Catholic religion anymore. Hmm. Uh, so it had to be suppressed. Um, well... So far, he hasn't been terribly successful at that either, but he's still trying. Um, he's still he's still trying to, to do that. And uh, with his synod on synodality going on right now, he really does expect to just simply replace what's left of the Catholic Church with his synodal church, uh, 
with all of its inclusiveness and will it be inclusive of everything including every perversion except for one thing it will not be inclusive of the traditional catholic faith and the traditional catholic mass that's the one thing that it will not include mm -hmm. it'll be open to everything else but father how, how do you see this playing out i mean it seems that it can't go on forever i mean with with francis's senate i mean it seems every day he's getting uh, closer and closer to just I don't know, outright proclaiming a, a totally new church um, with, with a new faith. I mean, he says the traditional mass doesn't reflect the Catholic faith anymore. Um, he has new sacraments, new stations of the cross, new rosary, new everything. Um, at, at what point, uh, I don't know, groups like the, the SSPX or maybe more conservative um, would-be traditional Novus Ordo Catholics, um, at what point do they have to just leave this behind? and say that this is, in fact, a new church that he has created. Well, at the moment they face reality and see exactly what he's, that this is not Catholic, they have to stop it. They have to sever all con connections with it. And they have to go back and practice the traditional Catholic faith if they want to be Catholic at all at that point. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, Tom, what we're witnessing now going on in Rome with this synod on synodality was forecast by Francis from the very beginning, back in 2013-2014. Francis issued his, his statement on synodality and the creation of the synodal church. He spelled it all out. It's a, it's a relatively short document. But in that document, he actually, uh, you know, reveled in the 50th anniversary of, of Paul VI synod, the creation of the synods. And... Uh, he, he stated what the role of the faithful, the laity was, what the role of the bishops would be, the clergy, the higher clergy, and what his role would be as the pontiff, right, or as a uh, pope, let's see, the Petrine, successor of Peter, whatever he wants to call it. Uh, he will not call it the Vicar of Christ, though. But he spelled it all out, and when you read that, it's exactly what he's doing now. It was all spelled out then, and those who were paying attention then and read that document realized this is where he's going, and it's not Catholic. <clears throat> I mean, he actually said in the document, uh, the church must listen to the people and hear what their faith is, their faith experience is, and they will then report what their faith experience is to the bishops, who will then basically... Uh, formulate it into a, a, you know, a number of documents and present those to me, Francis, and I will then further formulate this into statements of the faith as it is now, as the people see it, as the people experience it. This is pure, sheer, mere modernism, okay? And people who, who read that with attention would say, he actually is saying the faith is coming from the people's faith experiences on the ground level, and they're determining what the faith is and what the divine, what God, who God is even. Their experience of the divine is the, the idea of the, um, of the modernists. You know, somebody asked, we, we talked about what faith is in the mind of a modernist, but we haven't, they say, talked about what faith is in the mind of a Catholic, so we can see the difference. And I think maybe we could pause for a moment and state that. What is faith to the Catholic Church? How does the Catholic Church define faith? 
that would show us clearly that what the modernists hold faith to be is not really faith in the, as Catholic, the Catholic Church teaches it. And the Catholic Church teaches that faith is a supernatural virtue. Supernatural meaning that it's not something that we can just conjure up within ourselves by trying really hard to do it. It's above human nature. Why is it above human nature? Why does it have to be infused in our souls by the grace of God as a gift? Because it is a virtue or a power of the intelligence of the human intellect to give full assent of belief to truths revealed by God, truths that are to us unattainable and inexplicable, inexplicable, because they are mysteries of God's own divine life. Truths such as the Blessed Trinity, the three persons in one divine being, truths such as the second person of the Trinity, divine Trinity, becoming man, actually having the nature of the infinite nature of God, and in one person now taking that divine person, taking human nature to himself, and God becomes man without ceasing to be God. Uh, that the mystery of the incarnation, the mystery of the redemption, the mystery of the real presence of our Lord and Blessed Sacrament. These are all mysteries that we could not simply make up for ourselves, and we certainly could not adequately explain them to ourselves to take away still the need to believe them. And that belief, that acceptance of the truth of these, these truths, the truth of these divine truths revealed by God, that acceptance is based upon the authority of God who revealed it, God's own veracity. We accept the truth of these things because God himself has told us, pure and simple. That's what real faith is. It's a supernatural virtue infused by grace into the human intellect to allow that, to, that human intellect to accept firmly with the firmness of belief and truth that God himself has revealed on the basis of God's revelation that he has revealed it. Now, we see that that is a supernatural virtue beyond mere natural human powers to believe because our pride stands in the way and says, what I can't figure out for myself and what I can't adequately explain to myself, I will not accept as true. That's what our human pride says. There are philosophies built around that denial. Naturalism, rationalism, philosophies built around the idea that it is insulting to a human being and degrading to a human being to believe as true things that he cannot establish for himself and cannot even understand. <clears throat> Uh, and naturalism and rationalism are condemned by the church because they are diametrically opposed to faith because the church defines faith as she has, you see. Uh, it's a, a, a supernatural power of the intellect of men to accept divine truths and humbly acknowledge the limitations of his mind to understand the divine truths.
of God, see. Uh, any true religion must have those divine truths that surpass the human ability to understand. Because any true religion must be based upon a, a revelation of truths that we cannot simply figure out and adequately explain to ourselves. Um, so in any true religion, there has to be a divine truth revealed by God. Otherwise, it's just a natural religion that we made up for ourselves. Okay. And Catholicism certainly is that divinely revealed religion. Uh, you can see, therefore, how diametrically opposed that concept, the Catholic concept of faith, as an infused supernatural virtue or power of the intelligence to give assent, is opposed to the modernist idea, and how the modernist idea rejects the Catholic idea when the modernists say that faith is not a virtue of the intellect, it's not even a supernatural virtue at all. It, it arises from your experience of something divine in your life, something that is kind of overwhelming, something that is so impressive, so powerful, and so wonderful, that you think I've just experienced something of the divine. And therefore, I have the beginnings of, the, that's what faith is in me. Um, now notice I'm talking about virtue, faith as a virtue, like the origins of faith. Uh, when St. Pius X wrote his encyclical condemning the errors of the modernists, September 8th, 1907, is when he published it. Pascendi Dominici Gregis in Latin. St. Pius X, toward the very beginning of his encyclical, talked about the dangers of modernism. And he said modernism is particularly dangerous. He said it was the most dangerous opponent the church had ever faced. And one of the reasons why, he says, is because modernism attacks the very meaning of faith. You look at the translations and they say modernism attra attacks the faith and applies the acts to the very root of the faith. It's clear what St. Pius X was referring to. It's not just a doctrine of the faith. It's not just the, the, the catechism explanations of faith. Modernism attacks the very meaning of the word faith, the very virtue of faith, faith as it is in the human soul, not as it is in the catechism but as it is in the human soul, enabling us to believe what's in the catechism. That's where modernism goes. And it's destruction of all faith, of all true religion, as St. Pius X says. It's a synthesis of all heresies tied into one. The adulteration of the very meaning of the word faith. So uh, I hope that helps a little bit to understand the contrast, uh, actually more than contrast, the absolute contradiction between the Catholic understanding of what faith is and the modernist understanding of what faith is and why the modernist understanding is so deadly. Mm -hmm. Fatal, in fact, to all faith. It actually, it actually allows a person to say, I believe everything that's in the catechism and yet be a modernist. Because he, he believes everything that's in the Catechism on the basis of what he believes faith to be, 
he believes, but what does he mean by belief? I believe what's in here as a modernist. It corresponds to my experience of the divine. And I say, yeah, I can believe everything in here because it corresponds to my personal experience of the divine. But that's not faith. That's like the antithesis of faith. It is the ultimate falsification of faith. Mm. And it's very, very deceptive because of that. Yeah. And very dangerous because of that. So you might talk to somebody and say, oh, I believe in the act of conception. I believe in the incarnation. I believe in the Trinity. What do you mean by belief? Well, it corresponds to my, my experience of the divine something. And it kind of resonates with me that, yeah, this has the ring of truth to it. Because, again, my experience is the arbiter of truth for me. I'm sorry. That's not the veracity of God mm-hmm. revealing that you're appealing to. That's just your own personal warm fuzzies when you, you know, when you think about these things. That is not faith. Well, and Father, I think it's important to point out that this error of modernism, this destruction of faith, it didn't start with Francis. He's not the first uh, pontiff oh, no. of the Novus Ordo to embrace this, but it, it struck No, no, me going in, back to John the 23rd. Yeah, it, it struck Even me in, in his file in the Vatican, it was suspected of modernism yeah. was written there. Yeah, but in, in watching, um, you know, we, we started talking about Michael Matt's video, and, and watching that, though, he said that uh, people who... who um, kind of lean towards the state of a conscious position. He doesn't blame them. He blames Francis because of the uh, the, the things that Francis has done. But um, I mean, this this has been going on much longer than than Francis. Oh, you clearly, say, even, clearly. even John twenty third. But even but even with with Vigano and um, I mean, Francis to, is a result of this process. You know, he, he didn't initiate this. No. He's like the fruit of the process. Yeah, it's going on for a long time. Yeah. So. But even with, uh, with, with Vigano, I mean, to his credit, he, he does um, uh, point out the, the errors of, of Vatican II, but um, not sure if he totally makes the, the connection yet, because even in, in the, the speech uh, that, that we read through and referenced last week, um, there's, I mean, he, he seems to just focus a lot on, on Francis and how, uh, you know, we have to question the, the legitimacy of, of Francis's papacy because of, again... His consent, or a lack of consent. Yeah, yeah but, and, and a lot, he points out a lot of the, the things that, that Francis has done, but I think still kind of misses the point of modernism and how this has been around. This has been yeah. infecting the church for um, well over a That's century That's true. Now. He's got to see modernism in Francis's predecessors, too. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a that's, big. That's true. That's a big, a big step. A big step, but I think it's a big uh, error that a lot of people miss. I mean, I think it's a huge well, mistake to just though. pretend like everything was okay before Francis, Francis yeah. <laughs> came yeah. along. I think if we really want to find the, uh, the the root of this problem, it's it's modernism, and that. And I mean, mm-hmm. you mentioned you're um, absolutely right about that. Pushendi, I mean, Pope Saint Pius X, he wrote that in, in the early 1900s, and he says in there that we have been fighting modernism already for years um, as a priest, as a, as a bishop. So this would mean that at the, the very earliest, I mean, in the late 1800s, uh, modernism was, yeah, was well, he was made to run Rancho. Bishop of Mont- Mantua, and I think in 1884 or something like that. I'm trying yeah. to remember it now. Um, and then he was already trying to deal with modernists and to yeah. convince them and to, um, to dissuade them from their modernism. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. So, um, yeah, this has been going on for a long time now. 
but I think it's important to point out the, that the, that is the Novus the Ordo, the priests, uh, the, the the pontiffs from Vatican II on have all been infected with modernism. Yes, they have all represented modernism. The changes brought in were all in the not only were they were inspired by modernist yeah. modernism belief, modernist belief, yeah. uh, modernist thinking. The new order mass, the new order sacraments, all those changes were made uh, because they were based upon a modernist mentality at work. And they, were the ex they are the religion of modernism, is basically what they really are. Yeah. And Father, I think this um, discussion leads nicely into something else that we wanted to mention, maybe, if we, if we could uh, um, carry on this, this discussion that is, is uh, in regards to apostolic succession. Mm. Um, because if you say that these, um, these, these Novus Ordo Pontiffs and even the Novus Ordo clergy, the Novus Ordo hierarchy is infected with this modernism, <coughs> and if uh, maybe because of that someone um, might uh, lean more towards the state of a position, um, even if he holds that as a, his own private opinion, um, is is that person denying apostolic succession by saying that the visible hierarchy of the Novus Ordo Church, they are infected with modernism, we do not recognize them as legitimate, that leaves therefore no visible hierarchy, no visible pope, but not even a, a visible body of cardinals or, or hierarchy that, that can elect a pope. Um, some, this has been a discussion among some, uh, some of our viewers, I think many of our viewers, and uh, some have even emailed in and said that uh, this, this is um, some kind of new heresy that's beginning to, to spread where some traditional Catholics are denying apostolic succession or they're twisting the meaning of it. They have a contorted, perverted understanding of apostolic succession. So what, what does apostolic succession actually mean? And does someone who embraces the state of Vigante's position, do they reject apostolic succession? No. And again, this gets back to what I was saying earlier, that there should be an, an, a discussion about this. I mean, people bring forth that argument. All right, put it on the table. Is it a good question? It's a good question. Yeah. Does it deserve a good answer? Yes, it requires a good answer. Just asking the question and then walking away and saying, well, there's no answer to it is, is not the Catholic way of doing things. I mean, somebody who raises that question might say, well, Archbishop Vigano, are you questioning apostolic succession? I mean, after all, there are four marks of the church, right? The church is one, the church is holy, the Catholic is Catholic, the, the church is Catholic and the church is apostolic. Are you now saying that apostolic succession has failed in the church and now there are three marks of the church but we've lost one? You know, these are questions that could be directed to Archbishop Vigano because of what he said. Yeah. That he says Francis's papacy is at least in doubt because of his lack of consent. So, but rather than just kind of tie that message on a rock and throw it in somebody's, through somebody's window and then run, people should have the uh, honesty and the integrity to come forward and say, okay, I have a serious question and I want a serious answer and, and I will listen very carefully to what you say and take it seriously and see if it really is a good answer or not. But let's seriously discuss this question. Very few people are willing to do that, evidently. But you see, First of all, people who talk about apostolic succession have to realize <clears throat> that it, this apostolicity of the church is one of four. It is the last of the four. It doesn't make it the least of the four. It's still essential, right? All four marks are characteristic of the church, and uh, they must be there, right? 
So how would does the question uh, arising concerning the the validity or the 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 genuineness of the papacy of Francis or anybody any of the other post conciliar popes does that uh, attack apostolic succession or does it not that's a question that should be is there really an annihil there what does it actually mean and how does it actually fit with the other marks for example the unity unity is the first of the four marks of the church and that unity of the church actually is a threefold unity that must be there in the true church that Christ established. The church must be one in faith or doctrine, must be one in uh, worship, and must be one in government, okay? And you might say, okay, well, the, the unity in government then and rule, that kind of corresponds to the uh, the apostolicity, doesn't it? it? It has a connection there. And that's no surprise that you'd find that these four marks actually are kind of interwoven. Of course they would be, necessarily, interwoven, right? <coughs> because they actually are reflections of Christ, who is the supreme <coughs> pastor and prophet and priest, okay? The priesthood of Christ, the prophet, prophetic character of our Lord Jesus Christ and his pastoral character all have to be interwoven here as they are in him. They have to be interwoven in these uh, matters of the characteristics of the church, the marks of the church. And we find those three characteristics interwoven right within the one mark of unity itself, the threefold unity. But notice the first unity of the church always start it always starts with doctrine, the unity of doctrine, right? And of course, when people talk about apostolic succession, they historically the theologians, the fathers of the church have always talked about the unity, the succession, the apostolic succession begins with the continuity of teaching. Again, that refers back to the unity of doctrine. No surprise there. The continuity of teaching. Down through the ages, the church teaches the same doctrine. She does not contradict herself. She does not deny today what she taught yesterday. She does not invent a new doctrine that has no connections with, let alone is opposed to, the doctrines that she's taught for all these centuries. And as soon as I start mentioning that, then again, you start saying, okay, the unity of doctrine, the continuity of doctrine is precisely what is at issue here, isn't it? <clears throat> the unity of doctrine, the continuity of doctrine, the unity of worship, the continuity of worship. It doesn't just mean that we all agree we're going to worship this way now. It means the unity of worship with the church's entire past. That's where the apostolicity comes in. It doesn't just mean that all Catholics get together and decide, well, let's all worship this way now. Now we have unity of worship because we're all going to do it the same way now. But it has nothing to do, it's a break with what the church has done in the past. The apostolicity says, no, no. <clears throat> the unity of worship now has to be united with the worship of the church, not only geographically 
right now, but in time, for writing right back to the apostles. In other words, we have to have the worship that Christ gave us, that Christ gave to the apostles, and that they have, through successive generations, given to the church, even to our own day. We have to have unity with the church of the past in time, not just in unity with whatever calls itself the church at the moment. And this is where Francis breaks down, see. He's saying we all need to be united in this diversity. We need to be united in this synodality for the church of the new millennium, the third millennium. But this is a, a, a rejection of the apostolic succession of the unity of doctrine and the unity of worship and even the unity of government that has gone before because Francis is inventing a new papacy. He's redefining the papacy too. So the three areas of unity of the church, its first mark, are all called into question by Francis, all undermined by him, and really, frankly, they're all being redefined by him. The unity of doctrine, the unity of worship, and the unity of, of government under the papacy is not just how Francis understands these things and what he intends to make these things now, even though he wants the whole world to conform to his ideas. The question is, he is breaking that continuity with the past. And in doing so, he's actually denying apostolic succession. He is denying apostolic succession. <coughs> and giving us a new, a new church, a synodal church, with its new doctrines, its new worship, and its new government. His new concept of what the government should be. Synodality, that is, that is his new concept of the church government. How the church should define her faith, how she should worship, and how she should even be governed. It comes from the ground up. It's a democratic church, and it lives um, uh, basically with the experiences of her, of her people throughout the world. That is what determines what this new church is going to be. He's creating it before our very eyes. It is an absolute repudiation of apostolic succession. Now, some might say, well, wait a minute. No, apostolic succession is just the fact that you had, you know, the apostles ordained some men and consecrated them as bishops, and those bishops made other bishops, and other bishop, they made other bishops, and they made other bishops. It's just a matter of materially tracing that line of continuity of that, of that uh, power that Christ gave to his apostles. Uh, so, you know, as long as we can say, okay, so-and-so consecrated, so-and-so, so-and-so consecrated, so-and-so, then so-and-so consecrated, and we can bring it up to the present day, we have apostolic succession, right? No. <clears throat> Heretics do that. The Orthodox have that. The Greek Orthodox. It doesn't make them Catholic, right? Because they don't have the other marks of the church, right? The Anglicans claim to have that. But on the basis of the same thing, well, look, we have this material thing. I mean, look at the names. We have a list here. We have a flow chart. And we can see, you know, so-and-so did this, and so-and-so did that, and then came so-and-so, and then came so-and-so. So we have that continuity. But they don't. They broke the apostolic succession yeah. when they departed from the faith. And when we read the authorities of the church on the matter of apostolic succession, they always make that point, that there is a continuity of faith. Not just a continuity, 
that so-and-so put his hands on somebody's head and made him a bishop. And that's what apostolic succession is all about. The church has always made the point very clearly. I mean, look at, look at the, the Catholic Encyclopedia. You know, sometimes people ask us, well, what are your references? And you start quoting, like, Zubi Zaretta's uh, uh, De Ecclesia, a tract on the church, you know. And it's in Latin. I don't think it's in English or any other language. I think it's still all in Latin. And it's inaccessible to them. They say, well, that doesn't help me. But when you quote the old Catholic Encyclopedia, they say, well, this is something I can actually go and consult. So it's not the ultimate a reference, obviously, but it's still something that they can actually go and look at. And in the article on apostolic succession <coughs> in the 1911 Catholic Encyclopedia, we read, on the other hand, we speak of a breach of continuity whenever a constitutional change takes place. A church enjoys continuity when it develops along the lines of its original constitution. It changes when it alters its constitution, either social or doctrinal constitution. Social or doctrinal. Doctrinal is underlined here. So it has to have that social or doctrinal constitution in continuity, right? with its original constitution, as Christ established it. And when it loses that, it loses that succession. And this is, this is exactly the issue today. And again, apostolic succession, we read here in uh, another consideration of that. It says here in the Creed, we recite the words, I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Now it's important to understand that these four positive marks of the church are what distinguish her from the false counterpart or claimant churches, quote-unquote. If the claimant sect or church lacks any one of these marks, it cannot claim to be the one true church as founded by Christ. Continues, a mark that distinguishes the true church of Christ from all other claimants is that it be apostolic. Hence, we read in the letter of St. Paul to the Ephesians, quote, So then you are no longer strangers and sojourners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord. That's from the epistle of St. Paul to the Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 19 to 21. It is by the note of apostolic succession that the four marks of the church are made most evident. Since it ought to be contained, oneness, unity with the head of the church, the holiness, which stems from conforming ourselves to that doctrine, Catholicism, the same universal faith, universal in space and time, and the apostolicity of the faith as should be evident in those who hold the legitimate succession of the apostles. And so if they depart from the unity of faith, the doctrines of the church, they have departed from apostolic succession. They've denied it. This is what should be the hallmark of apostolic succession. The, the unbroken continuity of faith call here doctrine, 
Francis has already proclaimed his contempt for the very idea of doctrine. Because precisely, it does not change by definition. Now, I said, you know, people ask for sources, okay? You try to give them something that's accessible to them. Well, many people have this book, The Fundamentals of Catholic Dogma, published by Herder. The author is uh, Father Ludwig Ott, O-T-T. Very familiar uh, to the Catholic people, readily available to them. And they can check this. This is what Father Ott says in his Fundamentals of Catholic Doctrine with regard to apostolicity. He says, the church founded by Christ is apostolic, and that is de fide. Okay? It is an actually defined doctrine of Catholic teaching. The Nicene Creed confesses, credo in opistolicam ecclesiam. The dogma asserts, in its origin, the church goes back to the apostles. She has always adhered to the teaching which she received from the apostles. Notice where they start this. Okay? The pastors of the church, the pope and the bishops, are connected with the apostles by the succession of office. The apostolicity of the succession guarantees the unfalsified transmission of doctrine. They always base this succession from the apostles on the transmission of doctrine and makes manifest the organic connection between the church of the present day and the church of the apostles. And uh, and it goes on, actually, briefly. I'll just read the, the next paragraph. Proof, Christ founded his church on the apostles by transferring to them his threefold office, teaching, pastoral, and sacerdotal, and by appointing Peter, the supreme pastor and the teacher of the church. Christ willed that these offices and the powers corresponding to them should be transmitted to their successors, since the purpose of the church makes it necessary that these be perpetuated. In the unbroken succession of the bishops from the apostles, the apostolic character of the church most clearly appears. It is sufficient to point out to, to point to the apostolic succession of the Roman Church, because the Roman Church is the head of the whole church and vehicle of the infallible doctrinal power. Again, it all centers around the doctrine, the succession, the maintenance, the the unadulterated transmission of teaching. Consequently, the apostolic church and the unfalsified apostolic teaching are where Peter or his successor is. And you can see why people are now raising the question. Is this where Peter is? Is this... Is this where Francis is? Is Francis there? Because his teachings are at such variance with the teaching, the doctrines of the church coming down to us. Right up to the time of Vatican II, when the wavering and the, the obscuration, the, the, uh, the obscuring of the faith began, the ambiguity leading to ultimately outright denial on Francis's part, and the rejection of the very notion of doctrine. So you see, it is the very, the, the very notion of apostolic succession that is at issue here that leads people to question whether Francis could be part of that apostolic succession. 
because its, it's fundamental foundation is going to be found in the teaching of Christ in his doctrine, mm-hmm. um, which Francis now is not only calling into question, but which he's openly, openly despising. Yeah. So, in other words, Father, it seems that those who um, would follow a Novus Ordo modernist church, that, uh, that, that they would have more, more questions to answer in regards to the absolutely. Well, they do. They have to ask them the question, well, if, you, if Francis really is the supreme pontiff and the vicar of Christ on earth, then is it not true that apostolic succession has completely failed? Yeah, yeah. And is it not true that you'd have to say that he's the, the successor of Christ, not the victor of Christ, but the successor of Christ, yeah. in establishing a new church, which is not the church that Christ established? Mm-hmm. But are you not saying that the church that Christ established died, and the, the new church of Francis, the synodal church, is now being built upon this like some phoenix rising from the ashes mm-hmm. of the old church? Yeah. Father, how, how does this question uh, tie into um, the hierarchy and the whole state of Vicantism question? Because there are certainly uh, traditional Catholic bishops in the world today who we would say have apostolic succession. We can trace their lineage back to St. Peter himself. Uh, we can say they, they certainly teach the traditional Catholic faith. They hold the traditional Catholic faith and, and teach it. Um, but that doesn't necessarily make them members of the hierarchy, or does it? Um, does that give them any kind of authority? It doesn't mes- necessarily make them um, members of the magisterium. Right? Okay, does, does uh, that give them but any... For example, when, our, when, our, when Bishop Mendez consecrated <clears throat> Bishop Kelly, mm-hmm. I was there at his right hand, observing the whole thing, right? And um, Bishop Mendez has stated that he was consecrating Bishop Kelly so that the faithful would have access to the true sacraments of the church and the graces of the sacraments. Bishop Mendes stated that, that that was his, his purpose was to make sure that the Catholic faithful were still practicing the Catholic faith and believed the Catholic faith, would have access to the true traditional Catholic sacraments and the graces that those sacraments provide. Um, so in his in his pastoral office as a bishop, um, he was actually wanting to be sure that the priestly power of Christ, the the justifying and the sanctifying power of Christ through the sacraments, would still be available to Catholic people. And this has always been foremost in the mind of the, of the church in times of crisis. The people need access to the sacraments. There have been times when there have been interdicts imposed where maybe a whole nation would be put under interdicts that they would have not have access um, daily to the sacraments or attending the Mass. But that was in the hopes of saving them from actually losing their faith and going into schism, you know, yeah. entirely and abandoning the faith entirely to appeal to their their their, their faith and their hope and their love for Christ in the Mass and the sacraments. <clears throat> so it was a, a punishment for some way that they had deviated from the faith or the unity of the Church, the true unity of apostolic succession. It would be a punishment for that. But in the case of the Catholic faithful today, who are the victims of the modernists, who have been despoiled of their churches, who have been given of a, a, a new new order modernist liturgy to follow and new order sacraments with of dubious of dubious value, 
um, you know, that is that is not grounds to punish them and to say because they want the true traditional sacraments of the church, they are at fault for this. That's that is the fault of the modernists who brought about the Novus Ordo and have created the new order religion of modernism. Um, rather, when you have a, a bishop who says, I want to be sure that my Catholic faithful have access to the true traditional Catholic sacraments, that is doing what a bishop is called to, to do. He's simply being faithful to his mission and his ministry as a bishop to provide for the souls of the, of the, of the faithful of the church. Mm-hmm. Does that bishop have any sort of power to resolve the state of the contest question? Does he have any authority to elect the new pope in any way? <clears throat> no, no, no. This idea of getting the truly validly consecrated traditional Catholic bishops together to elect a new pontiff, this is something that no real traditionalist, real honest-to-goodness traditional Catholic even countenances for a second. Why? Well, for one reason, we have to realize from church history that whenever people tried to adopt a human solution to a, to a supernatural problem, they always made things worse. Witness what Archbishop Lefebvre, Archbishop, uh, uh, I'm sorry, Vigano um, says in his statement about the Council of Constance and the great Western schism that preceded it and finally was resolved by it. Every human attempt to address the issue just made things worse. We have to be very, very careful not to do that. Um, our, our priests, when, when Monsignor Lefebvre, God rest his soul, so love him very dearly, I offer the Mass for him multiple times a year for him, still consider him my father in the faith and the priesthood, but he, he was actually working toward a protocol with the Vatican at the time. And he obviously saw that I and other priests would be an obstacle to that because he wouldn't really be amenable to go making concessions to the modernists. And so he actually put us out of the society's advice at that, at that time. And I understand, I understand. Later on, he repudiated the protocol because he realized it was a fake, that they weren't really dealing with him in good faith. But not, and as I mentioned to you, Tom, on this program, that I actually contacted Monsieur Lefebvre after that, and asked to have a meeting with him, but I w- he died before we had that meeting. So, but in any case, um, the, um, the the fact is that Monsieur Lefebvre, you know, said we we have to interpret Vatican II in the light of Catholic tradition, and he was a- adopting the the idea we can have a working relationship with the modernists in the Vatican. And we can resolve the doctrinal issues later. But before Archbishop Lefebvre died, he made it very clear that is impossible. His last statement made it very clear it's impossible. And that is why it is, I think, kind of a betrayal of him to undertake any type of working relationship with the Novus Ordo, with the modernists, before the the doctrinal issues and leave the doctrinal issues undealt with and unresolved. As unfortunately, those who came after Monsieur Lefebvre seem of a mind to do, okay, because he warned them, don't do that. We tried that once, it didn't work, it can't work, okay. The doctrinal issues have to come first, and there are definitely doctrinal issues, clearly, uh, that won't go away. Um, but Monsieur Lefebvre never had the idea of 
let's call a conclave and a letter to the Pope, you know. Um, uh, he himself voiced the possibility that Paul VI had lost, had, was not the true Pope. In his, one of his works in 1976, he voiced that. Then he kind of retreated from that position. When they were going to have the World Council of Religions in Assisi, uh, he voiced that idea again, that if they go through with this, this will raise the question of whether this is the true Pope or not. But then he retreated from that again, probably for fear of the consequences. Now that he has Francis, I think his link, thinking would be much more in the line of, of Archbishop Vigano. I think, I think Archbishop Lefebvre would say, well, admitting Francis as a pope would call into question apostolic succession. And basically say, yes, uh, a pope can kind of reinvent Catholicism, redesign the church, re constitute the church according to a new idea, which is at variance with the original, uh, you know, the establishment of the church that Christ himself made. So, and I, I know Archbishop Lefebvre would never, ever get, uh, consent to that, would never ever consent to that whatsoever. So I think that uh, Archbishop the Vigano now is voicing the, the ideas that Archbishop Lefebvre would have in questioning uh, Francis's papacy, because Archbishop Lefebvre did raise those questions with regard to Paul VI and with regard to even John Paul II, for much less reason mm -hmm. than Archbishop Vigano is now questioning Francis. Yeah. But the idea of calling some kind of a conclave, electing somebody, is again, I think, a, a very um, tempting error that the devil could tempt us to follow. Uh, when we know from uh, church history the dangers of that, and we realize that uh, this could actually uh, compound the problem rather than solve it. This is a problem that you can't solve and I can't solve. Our only, our, our, job, our job is to hold the faith and practice the faith as according to the traditions that the church gave us before the revolution of Vatican II. To go back to that and to pick that up and follow that faith. That's what all Catholics who still have the faith should do. That's what the church yourself has said throughout the centuries. That's what you should do. Hold fast to the traditions that you received. Vatican II was a rupture with that. We have to repair that rupture. But, um, but the, the solution to the problem ultimately is something that only God can do. Because only he can give the graces necessary um, to actually convert the minds and the hearts of those involved. So again, we have to be, we have to have enough faith to recognize that Jesus Christ, that it's his church, he, he can and he will solve this problem in his own way, in his own time. In the meantime, we know what we have to do. Be faithful. Not pretend to be Christ any more than Francis is. Right. Uh, or not in the way Francis is pretending to be Christ. Uh, in any case, um, you know, Tom, even on another subject, though, something terrible happened in Israel, as you know. Uh, the, the Hamas um, uh, 
the incursion into Israel and the, the terrible slaughter and the, the enormous suffering that was caused by these. Um, I mean, they certainly meet the criterion of homicidal maniacs. I'm sorry, but uh, just the cruelty. Uh, but it's a cruelty that I think that is characteristic of Islam. Okay, they are just actually putting into practice what they believe. Vengeance is the law of, of, of Allah. I mean, who said that? Uh, Mohammed, their leader, their great prophet said that. Vengeance is the law of Allah. And when they do these things, they are actually showing the true face of Islam. Now, of course, you can't, you can't show the face of Mohammed. You can't draw Mohammed. That's a terrible, serious crime. Now, for us to depict the pace of our Lord, yes, we can look at these paintings of our Lord, as he's described in sacred scripture and tradition, and we see there the face of God. Our Lord says, he who sees me sees the Father. He said that to St. Philip the Apostle. But the face of Islam is, the, is really the face of Jihadi John, uh, the British... Islamic holding the bloody knife and a severed head in his hand. That's the face. That's the face of Islam. Okay. <clears throat> it has always been the face of Islam. It has been the faith of Islam that they, because they are the servants of Allah, that they have the right to enslave and to murder those who are not the slaves, the, the servants of Allah. So, because they submit to Allah, and that's what Islam means, it means submission, because they submit to Allah, they have not only the right, they have the mission from Allah to kill or enslave those who will not become the servants of Allah. And they are the most prolific slavers in the history of mankind. Um... Uh, to this day, Islam, in the name of Allah, they enslave, they abuse, they plunder, uh, they, they tax, they impose tribute. That's how they've enriched Islam from the very beginning, by plunder and tribute over the conquered peoples, those they allow to live. So... Um, this is what we face here. We face those coming across the border now, filling our own country. We face this very same thing. The so-called immigrants who are coming into our country, um, and those are pouring into Europe. Those especially are pouring into Europe. They say, are 85, 90% young Islamic men of military age. These are the refugees. These are the underprivileged the ones who are threatened in their own lands, Islamic men of military age flooding Europe right now. And so we see the crime waves wherever they go. We see this. It's just a matter of fact. Um, people may not like the facts, but it is a matter of fact. And uh, so that's what is being set up here. We, our hearts go out to the people, the, the individual people over there, the families who are suffering the the murder of their children, the murder of the parents, and so on. But it really is what Islam is really all about. This, the, the peculiar thing that people are raising, though, is how could this have happened that the Israelis did not expect this, that they did, were not aware? 
I mean, the Egyptians have actually said that they warned Netanyahu that something very big was, was happening, and they say he dismissed it. But I mean, even their own intelligence services, how could they not have been aware? They are among the most highly tuned as, uh, intelligence services in the world, the Israeli intelligence services, between the IDF and the Mossad. I mean, they are really top of the game. And supposedly this has been planned by Hamas with the Iranian regime to whom, by the way, uh, Biden just sent $6 billion of ta our American taxpayer money. And, and, the, and the Taliban, in whose hands he left $80 billion worth of American argument, armaments, which are now, to some extent, in the hands of the Hamas of the Hamas savages, our own armaments that we left behind. How is it possible that no one saw this coming? They saw it coming, clearly. I mean, even Israeli citizens are asking these questions now. Even former members of the Israeli IDF are asking, how is it possible that you didn't see this coming? They don't believe that it was not expected. And the question is, why did they set this up? Why did they allow this to happen? What is the ultimate goal? And does it go back to, let's say, those who really call the shots in the world? What are they setting up now? Um, people are asking a question about, uh, about uh, diseases, okay? Okay, we've gone from that now, the great scare of the diseases, right? To the Ukrainian war, okay, against Russia. Now we've gone through that, and that's kind of played itself out in a, in the in the, even in the halls of Congress, and now immediately we have to go on to another crisis. Okay, and where is that going to take us? What's what's the purpose of that? People are beginning to catch on that there are some there are uh, maybe a handful of people behind the scenes who are orchestrating this whole process, and uh, the they're they're pushing forward with the idea of uh, basically a, a communist world that they control, that you will own nothing and you'll be happy or you'll be dead. Okay, you, you will you'll be, learn to be happy or you will not, you'll have no place in our world. That you're going to be in our 15-minute cities as a kind of prison compound and um, your life will be controlled and will be determined for you day by day, even who you're allowed to associate with. Um, you know, um, Tom, just to kind of cap that off, you know, the Soviets actually experimented with that. They actually, uh, let, Stalin himself actually had uh, the building on the river, I guess what they called it, uh, the building on the river, which was a building which was supposedly self-contained, where the, the uh, members of his government, Stalin's government, all of his, his uh, associates who actually carried out the day-to-day -day operation of the communist government, they all lived there in those apartments. And they had everything they needed, and they were contained there, where Stalin could actually keep control of them and spy on them. And every apartment um, had uh, spy devices to hear what was going on and monitor what they were saying. He was keeping his enemies close, but his friends close, but he was keeping his enemies, potential enemies, closer. There's a whole study, a whole documentary, multiple documentaries 
on this building where Stalin kept his friends, right? Um, uh, those working in the government to make sure that he had dibs on, on them all. And at any, any given moment, any one of them could be taken individually or as a family, and they would just simply disappear. And then somebody else would fill that apartment and again, be under constant surveillance. And you read about these 15-minute cities they're talking about now, and you realize, well, this is exactly the model that they're setting up here. This is what they're try trying to do here. <clears throat> there are precedents for it already. Okay, they've learned their lesson well, how to control people. In any case, uh, you always ask, and I think I might have thrown you off the track there when I brought <laughs> that up, uh, but what you know, uh, inspiring or thoughtful message might there yeah. be? And I know we've gone a little bit uh, lengthy here, and I apologize for that because we are trying to pare it down, and we will in the future. But uh, we have to, in all of this, uh, have a deeper faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, you know? I mean, all of these questions that come up today, um, our Lord has given us a great treasure, and that is the treasure of our faith. And uh, people ask, well, why me? Why would I still have the traditional Catholic faith when the whole world seems to be running off in the opposite direction? And uh, is it because I'm someone special? And um, the answer is, we are the lame and the blind. We are the one, the deaf. We are the ones who have been brought in by, by God, by the servants of our Lord, to the wedding feast. And we must realize a very special responsibility we have for that, that uh, our Lord has told us who are the ones who are going to, um, you know, hold on to the faith. And, and they are the ones who are called into the wedding feast, who are not the original guests invited because of their excellence, we're invited precisely because uh, of our lowliness. And uh, we have to learn that from Our Lady. And rather than be proud of ourselves, ourselves, we have to be humbled by it and have to realize that we have a very special, um, as it were, uh, duty to our Lord, to the faith, and to the people out there in the, in the world who are wandering um, and wondering and wondering what's becoming upon the world and why. We have an obligation to represent our Lord as well as we can by His grace and to represent our faith, our hope, and our charity. St. Saint, uh, Saint, uh, Louis Grignon de Montfort said that uh, the saints of the latter days would kind of outshine the saints of the earliest days as the cedars of Lebanon towered over the shrubs. You know, it's hard for us to imagine. But if, if our Lord really is calling upon us in these times to stand up for our faith and therefore represent our faith, then we have to require more of ourselves, more, a deeper faith, a more profound hope in our Lord, an unshakable hope in Him, and an invincible charity that binds us to Him. So uh, we turn to our Blessed Mother. No wonder our Lord has sent our Blessed Mother to address us for that reason, because she, above all, has represented exactly that sublime level of faith, hope, and charity, and she 
is the model our Lord is proposing for us now, to hearken to her voice and to uh, follow, follow her directions for the peace of mankind. Mankind's peace with God, first of all, and then peace among themselves as a consequence of their peace with God. So I've said my peace. <laughs> <laughs> Father, thank you. God bless you. Appreciate your time tonight. Certainly, Tom, thank you. God yep. bless you there. Thanks to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady of Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, to pray and do penance. Thank you. God bless you.